Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. I've gotten the text or the call at 3 o'clock in the morning where one of my boys just needs to tell me, like, you know, you will not believe what the hell just happened to me. And I feel that. You know, I like, like, I listen I tell him like, hey, man, that's the world we live in. I'm sorry, brother. He hears me. And then, you know, when it's my turn, he'll do the same. I'm not sure what other response there is. That's certainly better than balling your fists and and going wild the way you want to. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Cole Brown. Cole is a 25-year-old writer and author who has just published his first critically acclaimed book, Grey Boy, a series of essays written about a life on the intersection of class and race. Cole has Ethiopian lineage, but is mostly called predominantly white, wealthy neighborhoods in the US home, and has so many valuable insights to share on white privilege, racism, and black identities. So what is it like growing up black in America when you don't quite fit the stereotype of what the world tells you being black looks like? What is it like to share your most personal trauma with the masses? And pressingly, how does Cole feel about the upcoming US election? We considered ourselves so lucky to be able to sit down with Cole Brown for 45 minutes and we hope you get as much out of this conversation as we did. Here's Cole Brown. Cole Brown, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you. We begin every interview at the moment with the exact same question because we think it's quite fitting for the climate and the time that we find ourselves in. How are you coping? Because in myself, I am struggling. Zara is struggling. A lot of the people around us are struggling. How are yeah. you going? I think I'm doing all right. I think I've, I've come out of the, the tougher times between work and being American, which is just a stressful experience right now, and a few other things. Uh, it was tough a, a few months ago, but I, I think I'm on the other side of it now. Well, that is lovely to hear. Another question that we always ask people, Cole, is what are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to somebody listening? Because I know that reading books and listening to podcasts has kept us sane in the last few months. So what's been keeping you sane? Yes. Okay, I'll give one of each. On listening to podcasts, I just started People I Somewhat Admire, I think it is, by the Freakonomics guys. Really good. Lectures from super interesting people. TV show, I'm late to the punch, but I did uh, I May Destroy You, which is brilliant. We're still late to that punch, Michelle. Oh, I know everyone is raving about this. Yeah, like just do it. Prioritize it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then a super brief book that I just did was Zadie Smith's like, little essay collection that she just released. 
I got to say like price per word, she, she really pulled one over on the readers on that one. Like it's not, it's not, there's not <laughs> much there, but the writing quality is fantastic and totally worth it. We're going to jump forward way too much right now, but how the hell do you get Queen Latifah and Diddy to write a testimonial on your book? That is insane. Yeah. You, um, you start early. That, that took like, that took like a year, like Diddy getting Diddy to sit down and write a couple sentences on a book is not a quick process. So um, <laughs> my my recommendation is if, if you guys have anything you want Diddy to comment on, get your request in today because um, he <laughs> might not get back to you for a little while. <laughs> but like, where do you even start? Do you like DM them on Instagram? Did you have a connection? Did you like know someone who knew someone who knew someone? Like Queen Latifah and Diddy aren't just like people that the average <laughs> Joe seems to know. It is. Yeah. So, so the, the real answer is that it is a bit of exactly what you said, just like knowing, like, like putting out a bunch of feelers about who knows the person that knows the person that knows the person and chasing that down. With Diddy in particular, I used to work my one of my first jobs was that bad boy. So knew some of the people that knew some of the people and so forth. But yeah, that, that was in, in all of those cases. Misty Copeland was probably the first big one that came through. And I was super excited about that. All of those took a while but really happy with how they turned out. That's what you need. Cole, what were you like as a kid? Take us back to your childhood. What was your personality like? If you met yourself at five years old, how would you describe yourself? I think I was curious. I think I've always been. I hope I hope I didn't lose that too much. I also was like a troublemaker, even when I was super young, uh, like really energetic, ran around a lot, climbed on things and and hurt myself. But then I was also a reader, even when I was pretty young. At times that was forced, my parents kind of putting a book in front of me, but uh, I've always enjoyed reading. You are the son of a Fortune 100 executive and the grandson of Ethiopia's first female senator. What was your understanding of all that growing up? Like as a child, did you grasp how big that was to come from that kind of background? No, I think that, so So actually it's kind of interesting. My Both of my parents are working parents. My mom does her thing as well. She actually worked here in Australia. So it's funny because because the son of a Fortune 100 executive is in reference to my dad, and I realized that I, at no point in the book do I reference the fact that I had a working mom too, and and she's just as accomplished, and I'm just as proud of her. But the the I, I don't to say sort of like did I appreciate what that all meant? I'm not sure. I mean, I just had like two working parents. I mean, what it, what it meant to me was you know like after school and until much later than the other kids. In terms of my grandmother, you know, she's still a rock star. She, after she was a, a, a senator, she went back and did a lot of nonprofit work uh, in Ethiopia. She still does. But again, when I was little, what that meant to me was, you know, my, my grandmother was away a lot. She lives in Ethiopia and she, and she traveled, you know, probably eight months out of the year. So, so no, I, I don't know that I had, I don't think any kid has a real appreciation of sort of the work that it takes to, to get in, in those spaces. But I'm certainly appreciative and proud of it now. You grew up as a black man in predominantly white neighbourhoods and in the introduction of your very brilliant book, you write, a token is a member of a minority group included in an otherwise homogenous set of people. These are the collected stories of tokens and the world of white wealth we operate in taken together. I hope the stories provide some insight into the lives we lead. What is your earliest memory of feeling like a token? That's an interesting question that, believe it or not, I haven't been asked. I think... It happens. I think that, that kids begin to develop an awareness of race pretty early in life. So for me, some of the early racial sort of lessons that were handed down were, you know, like when I was in the third grade, I mentioned 
know, my parents, like my dad, I write this in the book, like just handing me books that no third grader should be reading and forcing me to write book reports on them on the weekends because they were so sort of terrified that I would grow up and not understand what it meant to be black in that world. I also think about, I, I think I mentioned this in the book that, that I went to this this dance class, this ballroom dancing class when I was in the third, which is just like the preppiest shit that anyone can send their kid to. And I was like the only black kid for miles in that setting. And I don't know that I felt it so much there, but I certainly felt it in my interactions sort of in, in that country clubbish space around that age as well. What about the mainstream media? I mean, obviously we're in Australia now. I have never been to the US, never grown up in the US. And I know that in Australia, our mainstream media is extremely white. It is very difficult to find any person of color, let alone a black person in the mainstream media. What about over in the US? Did you ever turn on television or look to the hosts on mainstream radio and think, wow, it's pretty white too? For me, it wasn't so much that it was white. It was that the blackness that, that was present in the media didn't reflect who I was. And I think that that's, that's kind of part of the reason that, that I wrote this book is that for so long, and I think it's changed in recent years in, in a really sort of encouraging way. But when I was coming up for so long, it just seemed like there was really limited options for blackness in mainstream media. I mentioned in the book that, that I grew up in Philly and Philly had Allen Iverson and Allen Iverson like was a black male stereotype for so many people. And was all that so many people knew of blackness. And, and I think that that combined with music videos and sort of all this other stuff that like I love. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan. But I just don't think it represents the all of us. So, so my struggle was, was not seeing myself reflected in, in media, not so much that there was no blackness at all in media. I mean, we touched on it just before, this idea of belonging or rather the feeling of not belonging neatly in one place. In Grey Boy, you write, I am forced to confront a frightening truth. Perhaps I truly belong to neither side of this world. Can we talk to that for a second? Like we talked earlier in the episode, what was your first memory of being a token? What about your first memory of not belonging? Because that's almost another extension of that, right? Right. Yeah, I think that that comes, one, that's kind of hand in hand, perhaps not sort of exactly the same, but there's certainly a feeling of even early in life, I am different somehow. I don't know that it's so much not belonging, but sort of I stand out in this environment. And then I think that the not belonging stuff at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, comes in middle school. I think in middle school are, are just tough years for a lot of people, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And all of those other influences start to collide. So, you know, drugs and sex and alcohol and, and, and race is one of those that just sort of, you know, everybody collectively develops an awareness of at the same time. I think add that to, you know, I was at an all boys school and, and it's the first time that relationships between boys and girls are developing and we're all sort of realigning how we attribute value to each other. That all, that all collides for a pretty ugly experience for some people. I, I think that that's the case across the board, but particularly just because like I clearly stood out, like I, I physically stood out. I think it caused, you know, a magnification of some of those issues. So yeah, I think sixth, seventh grade, and, and I write about that in the book, that, that, that a couple of those were some pretty ugly years for me. That does lead very nicely into my next question, Cole, because one of the toughest essays to read, I think, in this book is when you write about being a teenager and wanting to harm yourself because you were realizing that you didn't fit in these boxes and you did feel that sense of being lost. You wrote, I am sure much of what I was feeling was normal teenage stuff, but much of it wasn't. Much of it was the compounding effect of dissimilarity. 
Can you talk to what that means? I can. I, you know, this was this, that was a hard essay to write for a number of reasons. So as you mentioned, that's that's an essay that's really focused on sort of depression and and some more difficult times in my life. And one of the reasons that I think that it was difficult to write is because, and I mentioned this, is that like there's an impulse to just be patronizing about it. Like there's an impulse to say like, oh, shut up, that was kid stuff. Even for myself, you know, like there, there's an impulse to 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 view it that way. And 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 there's an impulse to to extend it to all of us. Um, but but so it's it's difficult for me to tease out like what was particularly token about that and what wasn't. But I guess what I was trying to say there is that is that in that environment when there's so much uncertainty, you know, cliques formed and we find comfort in similarity. You know, we find comfort in knowing we belong. And my experience was that there was little comfort to be had from that, you know, because there was just no one like me. You know, so so it was hard to it was hard to find anything to sort of latch on to to let me know that I that I fit in that scenario. What was it like for your parents to read that bit? I mean, I know in the book you had your mum write a letter to you after that essay and she writes very beautifully too. What was it like? Did they have a conversation with you about what it was like for them to read your words with hindsight and to kind of understand that experience with hindsight? Yeah, that was really, really difficult. So I, I mentioned to you a, a bit earlier that this book took me about four years to complete. That essay was, I don't think was actually written until probably about two years in, not because I hadn't thought of it, but because I just wasn't sure whether or not I was really going to go through with writing and adding it. And then, and then it was probably another year or a year and a half before my mother ever read it. So I was really hesitant about, about showing it to either of my parents until I knew that I was going to go through with it. Once she did re- read it, I mean, you know, that's that's a mother reading about her baby. She struggled, of course. I think any mother mother would. I'm sure there was guilt that she felt about about the fact that her son went through that. She didn't know about any of it beforehand. But that said, it was I mean, we've had it's been a productive experience for the two of us. I think we've had some really grown-up conversations in the in the time since she read that and needed to in order to in order for her to write that essay for her to write that letter i think we both needed to mm-hmm. kind of work through that stuff so i'm really proud of her for for how she handled it and the fact that we you know i think became closer through it mm-hmm. how do you decide how personal to get in a book like this one i mean it sounds like it was a bit of an internal struggle for you to decide whether or not to include that essay zara and i've just written a book as well and i know that was a, mm-hmm. a bit of back and forth for us to decide how much of yourself do you share and how much do you want to keep to yourself and keep private was that an internal battle for you it really was i was fortunate i had i had a couple editors that would like read my stuff like tear it up throw it back at me and and the 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 consensus view after each round was often like you got to go harder like you got to you got to do better than that you got to go deeper kind of thing and i think for me i felt that this book was really important for kids that are growing up like me and for that reason i i had to get to a point where like all i cared about was being as raw and honest as as possible and none of the other stuff, you know, like what, what family members would think about it and, and what the school would say. And like, I had to clear all of that out and just, and just, you know, as my editors told me to just, just go harder. So I didn't leave. I mean, like, I don't think you read that book and think that like I left much on the shelf. Like I kind of, I kind of put it out there and strangely enough had gotten my mind to a place where I didn't even consider that anyone would read it 
until like the day it was published. Like, like I just like, I remember, I remember walking home from the gym, <laughs> you know, like really shortly before it was published, like literally like maybe a week or something and having like a damn near panic attack. Like, holy shit, people are actually going to read this book. Cause it was just, it was just so out of my mind by that point. But I think it was necessary to get to where I landed. How have you then found, I guess, the last month or so, like knowing that those stories that are very personal are out there? Have you found it freeing? Have you found it clarifying? Or is that still daunting for you to know that we've read it and other people have read that stuff? It was really, particularly early on, it was just really weird. It's still kind of weird. Like this is not stuff that I, I mean, again, like many of these stories, my family members did not know. And then it, it, feel, it kind of feels like my whole universe is, is finding them out at the same time. That being said, I'm like incredibly fortunate and blessed because the response has not been something that one should be nervous about. You know, the response has been unanimously in terms of people that I love and care about, you know, have come out to express that they feel the same way and that they're supportive of what I did here. So I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. And it, and it, 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 it eases a lot of the nerves around this sort of stuff. One thread in your book that I know Mish and I both found really fascinating was that of not really black. And on that you wrote, my white counterparts bestowed not really black as a term of endearment, a service of sorts. It was a stamp of approval and acknowledgement of civility that was their birthright to bequeath. Why do you think that label of not really black was such a frustratingly reflexive one? And, and how did it make you feel in those first few times that you heard it? It's frustrating to me, and it's frustrating even today. I, I I get it every now and then. Now I think people have largely grown out of it, but I get it every now and then. And it's 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 frustrating because I feel like people don't really think about what they're saying when they use those three words. You know, if you're looking at me and identifying qualities that you see as positive, the way I speak, the way I dress, the way I act, the way I eat, whatever. If you identify those qualities as positive. And then tell me I'm not really black because I contain those positive qualities. Well, then you're saying that blackness must necessarily be the negative qualities. And, and that's like a, a mental leap that when people, when people sort of throw that out, they're just like, I, I think they're just cavalierly not considering all that they're saying about my race, my people, who I am. So that so that's I think why it was frustrating to me. You have to remind me the the second part of the question. Just more how it made you feel. I mean, I guess you've kind of touched on it anyway, but do you ever still get that term now? I do, probably not as much as as I once did. Also, I don't think it bugs me as much as it once did, but in terms of how it made me feel then I I think it's it's the reason why that chapter is so the chapter is called Not Really Black and it's pretty early in the book. And the reason why is because I think that like the entire thesis of the book in some ways, is that chapter. I wanted to put that up front because, you know, the 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 self-doubt that one feels after hearing that is kind of what the whole book is, is about, is, to, you know, like, if you're telling me I'm not really Black, well, wait a second, then what am I? I find it interesting that you said it used to bug you, but it doesn't really bug you anymore. And maybe that's just one example, but we want to talk to you a bit about anger or frustration or what kind of emotions come up when we're talking about this stuff. What is your relationship with anger when it comes to racism? I feel it. I think I know, I know anger well when it comes to racism. I, I don't think I, I was asked this question recently and I, and I think I did a bad job of, of answering it. So I'm going to try to do better now that, that my answer then was sort of that my resting state is not anger. And I think that that is the case. Like I, I know some that are just on edge that are just ready to, 
you know, ready to pounce on those sorts of things. And I think that that my, that's not how I feel if for no other reason, because it would only be detrimental to my own, you know, sanity and, and mental health. That said, I don't know that any living, breathing, feeling human being can look at some of the stuff that we've seen the last few months, you know, George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death and, and so many others and not feel among many other emotions, anger. It really, it really drives me pretty crazy. And then, and then in my own life, I, I certainly feel that as well. Sometimes I don't, you know, I think that part of growing up is that you need to figure out how to, how to deal with those emotions in a way that is more productive than lashing out. But certainly when I, when I get that stuff, it still, it still drives me pretty crazy. Coming up after the break, what fear looks like when you're watching America fall apart from afar. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Is there an element too of over the years teaching yourself to self-regulate or push the anger down so it's not as visible because of that trope of the angry black man? Like, is that part of it too? Yes, that definitely is. I, I I told this story recently that I that I I had kind of an angry black man moment not too long ago where something happened that was just clearly racist. Like like anybody, any logical person looking at this thing would say that it was racist. I, I was the only black person in the environment and 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 was treated differently and began to get really angry and and was caught in this cycle of like. I would get angry so everyone else would look at me like I was the angry black man and therefore I would get more angry. And it was just a self-feeding loop that, again, like hurt no one in the situation other than me. Like No one else was really harmed by that. So I do think that there's an element of just not being able to, as a black person, and I don't, I don't think that this is exclusive to black men. I think that black women face this as well in perhaps a, a slightly more nuanced way. But for both of us, I think that there's a an element of not, you know, not being able to engage with that very human emotion the way that the way that white people often do publicly. What do you do with that emotion then? Like I've I can't even imagine how frustrating that would be. Is it then just something that you express between other black people because you feel like white people will be too sensitive to understand your emotion or to be able to process it for what it actually is? Yeah, that's that's my response. I I, I don't know what others are, but my response is that I have I'm again, I'm fortunate. I have like a support system. I've got, I talk about in the book, the black table, which is, you know, just like a few guys, my age, all black that were in those sorts of environments that I grew up in. And that's what we, among other things, that's what we use each other for. I mean, that's what we need each other for. You know, like I, I've gotten the text or the call at three o'clock in the morning where one of my boys just needs to tell me like, you know, you will not believe what the hell just happened to me. And I feel that, you know, I like, like I listen, I tell him like, Hey man, that's the world we live in. I'm sorry, brother. He hears me. And then, you know, when it's my turn, he'll do the same. I'm not sure what other response there is. That's certainly better than, you know, sort of balling your fists and and going wild the way you want to. You moved to Australia early this year. And I want to know, why did you want to leave the US and why did you pick here? I mean, I love Australia, but it does feel particularly <laughs> random. <laughs> yes. So this is, um, I'm not sure that there's like a, a totally satisfactory answer there. It's pretty simple. I, my mom moved here several months before I did. I was done with my old job. I was looking to, to start something new and I, and I tried here. But I guess the, the bigger truth there is that I'm young. I'm 25 years old. And there, there was a feeling of like, 
you know, this is my shot. Like, who knows, who knows where I'll be in sort of five years or so. Let's go clear across the world and, and see if we can make it work. And it's been great so far. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're delighted to have you. What has it been like, though, watching everything going on in the US, not just Black Lives Matter, but also the upcoming election? What has it been like watching everything from afar? Yeah, it's, it's concerning. You know, anger can probably be applied here as well. Frustrating. Despair can probably be. I mean, like, there's a lot of emotions about, uh, around looking at the U.S. in this time. I think that being in Australia gives me a slightly greater appreciation than many of the people I, I know back home about just how high the consequences are on a global stage for for the stuff that we're doing back home right now. You know, I'm just watching our reputation as Americans just diminish before my eyes which is frustrating. And there's also, there's also a feeling of like, I need to be there. Not as though, you know, I could put my cape on and fix this thing, but like, there's a feeling of, particularly in the wake of, of some of the, the protests and the killings and so forth, there's a feeling of like, I need to, I need to be there with my people. And that, and that causes a bit of frustration as well. Yeah. I was just going to say, has it been hard being so far away? Like, is there a sense of almost disconnect from being so far or is that a bit too simplistic for me to say? No, I think that's that's probably the case. You know, the the when I'm home, I you know I I listen to all the you know, the daily, all the New York Times and Washington Post and stuff podcasts, and I watch CNN and and like I am constantly flooded with uh, U.S. news. But to balance that out, I also have like a, a a lived experience in the U.S., so I'm able to filter you know all of this news through what I know to be the case on the ground. I think the struggle with with being so far away is that you only get the former and not the latter. So like you only see the CNN headlines that say Rome is burning and you don't, you know, get to your go to go to your local coffee shop and know that like everything is still standing. Um so that's been, <laughs> you know, constantly like constantly wrestling with those two, trying to talk to people back home and being like is it really this bad? And then saying like yes, it's really this bad. It's like trying to Trying to, you know, balance those has been tough. I can imagine it would sound like Armageddon based on all the headlines. It's kind of good to be right. able to touch base with friends and hear that, like, there are still things that are still standing and people are still breathing. Yeah. I want to know, how do you feel? I mean, there's less than a month to go before the election and it's so desperately unfair, but the stakes seem to be so much higher for black people in America given that we could see Donald Trump re-elected, not to say that the Democrats are perfect, but probably the lesser of two evils. How do you feel? Is it like an anxiousness, like a trepidation that maybe Trump will be re-elected again? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I have no reservations about saying that like I am totally freaking terrified that Trump will be elected again. Like I am like, like that is uh, uh, on my list of, of, of fears for the future. That is number one. You know, if you believe the polls and so forth, which a lot of people don't, it seems like that's the unlikelier of the of the two potential outcomes. But but yeah, I'm I'm terrified, and not just I mean for all of the for all of the reasons attached to my race that we've been over, but also like just as an American, I think that as a as a global person, as a global citizen, I think that I think that Trump is bad for democracy. I think he's bad for you know just the global order of things. So so yes, I am I am certainly fearful of that outcome. I think that there will be a lot of people listening 
who are privileged enough to be able to kind of switch off from the news and say, "Ah, uh, this is just all too much. I'm just not going to bother. I'd rather not know anything than know everything. And I want to know, talking to those people, what does fear look like? Because I think that there would be a large contingent of people who don't know what that fear looks like when these real world events will directly affect, you know, particularly the black community in America. How does that fear manifest right now for you? So, you know, that's an interesting question because I think that when you talk about sort of privilege to ignore political outcomes, I probably fit within that class of people. I mean, like, to be frank, like I, if Donald Trump is elected, I per, like my personal reality might not change that significantly. With that said, that's not, that's certainly not the case for much of my family. That's certainly not, not the case for many people that I know and love. You know, what does that sure look like? Like, you know, 200,000 dead from coronavirus when black people are, are dying at a much higher rate is like a real number that like, you know, really concerns me. You know, voter exclusion in so many of our states is like something that really concerns me. Gun legislation is something that really concerns me. And again, like our, you know, sort of obscure policies at some level, you know, healthcare, obscure policies at some level that at the same time, for many fall very hard on the body. And, and determine, you know, sort of bodily harm. So, so fear looks like attempting to connect, you know, the gibberish that is said on a debate stage with, you know, like real family, family members that could really suffer from that, that potential outcome. You've been writing about race for four years now, and of course, been thinking about it for your entire life. But I want to know, as far as your career is concerned, do you plan on continuing the path you're on right now and writing about similar topics, maybe following this great book up with another? Or is it something that could very easily burn you out? Like I can't imagine the toll that Grey Boy would have taken on your soul and your heart. What do you want to do with your career? Is there another area that you're interested in or is this where your passion really lies? The, the short answer is that I'm, I'm still figuring that out myself. The, the slightly longer answer is I think in the immediate future, I'm trying to figure out how to write screenplays. I'd love to see Grey Boy turn into, you know, something like that. In terms of writing another book, I started one. I'm still wrestling with it. I think that there is an element, you're right. I mean, maybe you, I know you both just released a book and maybe you feel this, that like one, you know, Grey Boy is largely memoir and, and I just don't have another one of those. Like, you know, my stories are all told. <laughs> yeah. And, and it does feel like I really kind of reached for all that I had kind of in the bottom of me to put it on those pages. And I'm still, I'm hoping this is just an ha- a hangover from the release. I hope this, this lets up soon, but I am definitely still in the phase of like trying to figure out what the next thing is. And I don't have a great answer for it. What about that concept of burnout though? Like, you know, you said you've been spending four years on this book. You've got to release the book, but releasing the book's kind of just the beginning, right? You've got an entire publicity tour to go on to speak to people like us about topics that aren't light. Like they're really, really heavy. Yeah. Are you burnt out? Are you tired? What's this experience been like? It's interesting. I, you know, there's certain questions that I will get first of all, like not everybody reads the book before they talk to me. So like there's certain questions that I'll get that everybody will give me because they're kind of the easy ones to reach to. And, and for those, you know, I've got rehearsed answers and I know how to get through them and, and, and it's just fine. It's funny because I've done it so many times now, though, every once in a while, I'll get an interview where someone asks me a question that is not on that list that I have in my head. And I like, I like get offended. I'm like, I'm like, how dare you? Like, 
<laughs> so like this isn't this isn't what what I practice in my head. And 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 every once in a while, one of those questions will be kind of a gut punch. I mean, one of the, you know, every once in a while, one of those questions will be about some of the more sensitive topics in the book, and I need to I need to get my feet back on the ground before I can answer. So so I haven't felt burnout. It's been largely you know, incredibly positive and I get to have great conversations about things that I care about. But every once in a while, I certainly have one of those moments. Talk to us about the future, particularly when it comes to race. Are you hopeful for change or does hope really hinge on the result of this election in particular in a month's time? Yeah, I am. So I'm going to sound like a downer here, but I, I, what the last election taught me is that sort of hope just for hope's sake, is is like self deception. I I don't I don't know that I I don't know that I'm in a place at this point after these four years where I hope just for the sake of hoping. I try to look at the information before me and and sort of make a reasoned guess. And in the short and medium term, I think I think the U.S. is going to be pretty ugly for a little while. I mean, like irrespective of of what happens in this election, I think that there's a lot of healing to be done. Now, again, in like in the longer term, I like to think that what does give me hope is is some of the activism we've seen. I mean, what does give me hope is is the majority of the U.S. population that has responded in horror with so much of what we've seen, and and is doing their utmost to correct our course. So, in the slightly longer term, I am hopeful. I think in the short and medium, we're, we're, we still got some diciness to go, though. I guess then I find that interesting because when you say, like, I, I don't want to hope for hope's sake and you don't have that much hope for the short and medium term, what motivates you then? Like, do you not need hope for your own sanity? I guess that that even though even though that is the future I see for us, I, I certainly think that things could be worse without action. Like, I don't I, even that is the future I see for us, including the calculation that is sort of like our effort when I say our like people resisting against that, like, you know, like that, that's, that's the bad outcome, not the worst outcome. I do think that change is possible. And, and, and then again, in the long term, you know, hopefully the positives went out. I just think that there's, I just think that there's been too much damage and too much healing for this to be an immediate fix, you know, on November, whatever, when, when Mm -hmm. Biden may get elected. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think then for change to come about, more effectively and a little bit more quickly, more white people on an individual level need to do the work and probably need to take more accountability for how they approach racism and maybe how they have perpetuated racism by not doing very much and kind of being a bit inert on the whole issue. You know, I, I think that that's always the answer. And I, you know, like, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that go into the society that I know well, becoming more sort of just and equitable. The one that I'm best acquainted with, though, is storytelling. You know, that's that's the tool that I have picked up, and and I think that it plays an important role. I, I think that my life was made more difficult, is made more difficult by the white people I encounter having no real understanding of of what walking through the same space entails for me and for many like me. And I think that 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 requires a re-education that, that demands, you know, like all of these, you know, all these books that like all the lists of books that went around on Instagram and so forth, like it's easy to be a bit flippant, flippant about that. But I do think that, you know, confronting the black American experience, honestly, 
is important work for people to do. And I actually do think that it can, that it can make a real difference. I know this might sound like a very silly question given you're only 25, but we do tend to ask as many people as we can. What do you want your legacy to be? Man, that is a big question given the fact that I'm, <laughs> I guess for anybody that would be a big question. <laughs> I want to, again, it goes to the storytelling piece and, and I reserve the right to change this over the next 50 years. But uh, <laughs> we'll right now, in. right now, I think that, again, like, I think my life was made more difficult by the fact that uh, too few of our stories were told. I think that there's just like a broad range of our stories that could be told. And actually, I mentioned I made it for you earlier. And like, and like, that's an example, right? Like, you know, pose and insecure. And I mean, there's so now it seems like there's there's such a broader diversity. And I really hope that that's not a fad. And I'd like for my legacy to be me working really hard to make sure that that's not a fad. Mm. Cole, who did you write this book for? Who was the young man or young woman in your mind when you were penning down these pages? So my answer to this, again, will be unsatisfactory, but I feel really strongly about it. I, I pushed every sense of an audience out of my head when writing this book. Uh, I thought that it was really important. This is really what I was talking about earlier. Was that like I just I couldn't have anyone else in my mind in order to get something honest on the paper. So I really so in in a sense I didn't write it for anybody from that standpoint. But now that it's been written, the people that I really hope read it are are kids that are growing up like I did. You know, like I I think that part of the reason I wrote it is because I felt like I needed it when I was that age and it wasn't there. So I've been able to have conversations with you know kids, you know whatever that are sort of in their mid teen ages. And it's, and it's really impact. I mean, it's kind of been life-changing for me to see that, that this has resonated with them. I think that there, hopefully there are a few other groups of people that can benefit from it, but, but that's really who it's really special to me when I hear that they've read it and it resonates. Cole, the last question we ask every single person who comes on an in conversation is what does success mean to you with all of this in mind? It's probably that it's probably, I probably answered it in the last question. It's having impact with like, with like that group of people. It's like letting, letting, letting the world, but also like, so I guess there's two, it's twofold. Letting a, the world know that we exist and that, you know, and that blackness is a, is a broad category of people containing many identities and experiences, but then letting that very specific minute group of people know that we exist and that blackness is a broad identity. You know, so so I, I think that I'd like that message to be shared along both those lines. Cole, we are so grateful that you gave us 45 minutes of your time today. We are such Absolutely. huge fans of this book and we are just really bloody glad that you wrote it because it's a beautiful piece of writing above everything thank else you. that's so wise and incredible in it as well. So thank you. Thank you. That, that flew by. I really appreciate you both uh, reading it and, and having this question. This was great. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Cole Brown. If you would like to get your hands on his debut book, Grey Boy, and let us tell you it is so beautifully written, we will pop a link to buy it in our show notes. If you enjoyed this chat, I also recommend you listen to our In Conversation episode with US-based model Jennifer Attilamil, 
or a chat we did last year with another author who also wrote a memoir, Georgie Dent. I will pop both links to those episodes in our show notes. As for us, if this is your first time listening to Shameless, we are an independent pop culture podcast. We put out episodes every Monday and Thursday. We have a monthly book club episode too. If you would like to keep up to date with us and be the first to listen whenever a new episode drops, all you need to do is click follow on Spotify. There's a big follow button. Click that. That is the best way to support the show. You can also find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. That is all from us, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.